Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good afternoon to those of you tuning in uh, here in the United States, and uh, good evening to those of you tuning in and elsewhere in Europe. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of V Radio News. Uh, we are now in the new month of October. I want to thank everybody who supported V Radio. I thought I was going to be taking a hiatus, and as always, you guys like slam me with donations that say, no, you're not quitting, so... <laughs> Thanks again. Um, that was really surprising. Um, in any case, uh, even if like I ever do get to a point where I have to cut back, like I said to you guys earlier, V-Radio will never end. I just may not be able to do it as often as I was before. Um, and uh, that being said, uh, if this is your first time li- listening to V-Radio, please check out my website, v-radio.org. Uh, there you can find archives of other news shows, but also interviews with documentary filmmakers, activists, uh, scientists, and politicians, the few good ones. Um, and not to mention uh, lots of great roundtable discussions about current events and some past events. And uh, not to mention my must-see TV list, which is a list of free documentaries you can watch on the Internet that I advise to anybody who is socially conscious or someone who should become socially conscious. And um, thanks again to support uh, for V-Radio. It is a listener-supported effort. If you are interested in supporting V-Radio, you can go to the same website and click Donate, and there you will find uh, several options to donate. So today, I once again have a panel for V-Radio News. I'm going to be having uh, each one of them introduce themselves, and I'm hearing myself on Meme's microphone. Oops, sorry. (laughs) That's okay. Um, So... uh, Meme, go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, thanks, Neil, for having me on. We go way back. Uh, people call me Meme Felter. My name's Chris. Uh, I am an information theorist and a student of current events. And my next uh, guest is uh, Devin Evans, also known as Voice of Reason. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, hey, my name is Devin Evans. I'm uh, basically what you would call an online activist. I tend to just inform people of some of the stuff that's going on in uh, politics, uh, international news, and current events right now. I'm not <laughs> probably not very well known, and most people might not even remember me after this episode. But, eh, such is the life of uh, mine. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Um, Gregory Wants will also be on this broadcast. Some of you might remember him as Thunder. He is one of the uh, activists. Um, radio host for Z Radio and ZBN Live. Um, he just needed to get out to the store. He'll be back in a little while. So um, today, actually, uh, one of the first things that inspired me to want to do a show today is that because of some stuff I've had to do, like my kid has been in and out of the hospital a lot, which is one of the reasons I was not doing daily news. Um, I've been watching Fox News as a result, um, and. One of the things that definitely changes about you when you become an activist and you become socially conscious is how much you learn about propaganda and the tactics of propaganda. And I honestly, one of the things I want to do now on V Radio is to essentially assign what I call V Radio homework. And to those of you who are veterans of, of the activist world, uh, go back and watch, say, an hour of Fox News. Um, if you can stomach an hour, then then you'll win a prize. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, stomach an hour of Fox News, but don't watch it, obviously, to be informed. Spend some time thinking very heavily about what you're seeing, okay, um, and analyze what you're seeing. Look very closely at the, the tactics that are being used by the pundits who are being paid 
to get you, you know, into their method of thinking. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed, and I'm, you know, I've obviously always hammered on Fox News on B Radio, but I'm now noticing that they're not even trying anymore. Like I only heard the term fair and balanced once recently, <laughs> um, but they're not even trying anymore. Like it literally reminds me of back when Meme and I, Chris, were working on a Ron Paul oriented radio during a campaign for Romney. That's what it feels like. Is this? As if it was a like we were working on Ron Paul radio network. Obviously, we were pushing for Ron Paul, and it feels like it's a Romney network. It feels like I've tuned into a Romney network. Like I was just sitting there taking notes just for the heck of it. It's like, okay, uh, three things that make Romney look good, two things that make Obama look bad, uh, terrorism bad, and then back to three things that make Romney look good. And I'm just like, wow, you know, I mean, they're not even trying anymore to be fair and balanced. They don't, they don't even have anybody on there that talks positively. And it's funny to me, actually, like how blatant it is. Like at one point they had an expert uh, on, you know, quote unquote expert on, and they flat out revealed that he's, you know, you know, you worked as an advisor on Romney's campaign. So, like, it's obvious that he's going to analyze anything that they bring up, you know, uh, as far as current events, you know, in a way that's going to make Obama look bad. Now, once again... I'm not an Obama fan. We all know that. Okay, I've told people, if you're going to vote at all, vote third party. That's not what it is we're trying to learn here. My suggestion to people um, about what they should be learning from this stuff is to understand how the media manipulates people and to therefore be better at protecting yourself from the media. That's the value in, in looking at this campaign as it is essentially the circus that we are exposed to to give us that illusion of choice that George Carlin talks about. So, um, I'm curious, has Fox News ever been fair and balanced? <laughs> when the fairness doctrine existed, they had to be. Um, and they used to have these guys like um, John Stewart actually argued with uh, Bill O'Reilly about this. Bill O'Reilly was like, oh, we have all kinds of liberal people. He's like, yeah, you, you put up these, like, wussy little types that you guys beat up on all the time. You know, like, they're like uh, Hannity. Uh, it's Hannity and Combs, and then there's that Combs guy. And he's okay, but he's not, you know, he, it's easy to interrupt him. He lets people talk over him and stuff. You know, it's like they do a really good job, a very structured job, of making the liberal, you know, side of things look bad. Like, it's it's very intentional. They only bring on people that make that point of view look weak. And I'm not saying that you're going to get any better anywhere else. I mean, if you if you tune in to, you know, Rachel Maddow, for example, which I, you know, I like a lot of her work, but you're going to get the same thing in reverse. You're going to get, you know, a bunch of stuff that makes Republicans look bad. You're going to only hear from, you know, Republican types that, you know, aren't going to really make that position look strong. And that's the, that's the underlying news within the news. And the other thing I learned is just, you know, after you've studied world events enough, you can kind of learn a lot just by learning how to decode what they're saying. You know, like, okay, they're saying this for this reason and this for that reason. Like, it was one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up um, was recently I've noticed this interesting trend about the Libya thing, that they are flat out now accusing the White House of covering up that it was actually an al-Qaeda attack, okay? that they're, they're not even joking around about it. They're literally trying to make it look like Obama is trying to cover up that it was an al-Qaeda, you know, an al-Qaeda attack. You know, um, and, and they just don't shut up about it. Like, it's, it's one of those things that they come back to. That's why I said, you know, pro-Romney, pro-Romney, bad Obama, uh, 
terrorism bad, you know, just like in a cycle. Um, and to me, I'm just, I looked at the situation and I mean, obviously I was not there on the ground, but hearing myself again, I changed nothing. Okay. The the first thing, um, that, I mean, and I'm going to open the floor as soon as I'm done explaining my point about this is that the first thing that went through my head being somebody who's analyzed this kind of crap before is that, yeah, definitely there was no doubt. Obviously the ambassador was killed. Do I think it was a coordinated Al-Qaeda attack? Well, after watching the BBC documentary, The Power of Nightmares, and learning that Al-Qaeda is pretty much a myth, no, I don't. I think that a random angry mob broke into the embassy and killed the frickin' ambassador. You know, but they needed to be this big structured thing, and more to that, they needed to be you know, a, a huge failure or some sneaky thing on Obama's part, because their their whole strategy now is to go back to you know, 9-11... And we need a guy who's going to protect us from the terrorists. You know, that's what I got out of that. That was my gut instinct. My analysis was to say that they're trying to push this to look like an Al-Qaeda attack, you know, so that they can make it and then try to say that Obama's trying to cover it up, which is it, it's odd to me that they would do that. But, you know, because normally that, you know, if, if we had a Republican president, you know, you don't ever accuse anybody of covering anything up. If you go back to 9-11, you know, let us not tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories. And the war on terror, terror, because I'm George Bush, and I don't know how to say terror, I just say terror. So <laughs> I'm going to open the floor up. Uh, Meme, since it's been a long time since you've been on, I'm going to give you the mic first. Uh, well, so once again, thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, you've just covered a lot of stuff. I got, I got something right in front of me from uh, the Democratic Underground. Just mm-hmm. The headline says it all. Fox hires Romney advisors to attack Obama, fails to disclose they work for Romney's campaign. And it's just that simple. There was like something between 20 and 40 uh, people who were double dipping on Fox and Romney's campaign. So uh, you're right when you said that they're not hiding it anymore. It's an open secret. They're just, you know, uh, Jones will say this, Alex Jones will say they're operating out in the open and they really are. I love, though, the example you talk about uh, with the the embassy protests that – got out of hand by by any yardstick, intentionally got out of hand, uh, are being reclassified as a terrorist event. John Stewart just covered that too. And by the way, everyone should check out John Stewart and Arnold Schwarzenegger's interview because that was weird. They uh, It's edited and really stilted, and I encourage everyone to check it out. Uh, is watching them try and go backwards and shift that story. Stewart plays his role in it too. Uh, to make it seem like it's this monolithic enemy that everyone can easily understand. So when the, you know, I, I told you it was going to be all, we talked before the show and I said it's going to be all softballs in the debate tonight. Nothing, the, the only contention points are going to be marginal contention points, gay marriage, stuff like that. Uh, I'm sorry if anyone takes offense. I don't mean gay marriages. I, I'm all for it. I'm an anarchist. Uh, mm. But that, uh, now we have our boogeyman for the debate just in time. They're respun it just right. Or, and I think uh, sort of after the fact, I think they figured it out like, oh, shit, we're going into it. Uh, I'm sorry about the swear. Oh, oh, heck, we're going into a debate cycle here. We need some news. Right. You know what? We should have Al-Qaeda be the one to attack Libya because then we can give up 45 minutes of a debate to it and keep the people blissfully ignorant that, you know, uh, our foreign policy is insane. Right, and that's in like you said, blissfully ignorant, and also keep us off the economy, you know, right. um, and have something to distract away from Romney's forty-seven percent debacle. 
Well, I mean, they're going to have a 90-minute debate, and they can't fill up 90 minutes with serious issues, you know? Right. So, so they're limited to the number of cotton candy items they can pick through, and they're willing to make a few more if they need to, you know, to, to buffer it out a little. Sure, you know, why I, not just, you know, take a few hundred deaths and stuff like that and turn it into a talking point? I really like that analogy of, of cotton candy because it's for something that tastes really sweet and has zero substance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it fills up a lot of space. Right. All right. So, um, uh, Devin? Yeah, um, with the presidential debates, it's always a very interesting thing here. Um, To be perfectly honest, I'm kind of hoping that the uh, efforts of public citizen and uh, the people for the American way and uh, and a site called AVAAZ.org, I don't... I don't know what that what that would be an acronym for, really. Uh, they were attempting to try and uh, get the moderator. I can't remember his name for the life of God in me, but they were attempting to get the moderator to ask the question about uh, pub, about the Citizens United ruling and what they would do to create or, or to uh, propose a 28th Amendment uh, for for restricting super PAC. Contributors on the issue there, and that would be pretty good. And we all, I think, we all know what's going to happen with Romney on this one. You know, he's he's obviously going to say, "Oh no, this is a restriction of freedom because corporations are people." You know, because he, you know, I mean, I, I always just love that line when he said when he tries to say, "No, sir, corporations are people." Oh man, but um, you dollar know, bills I'm are going to be people next. I guarantee you. Right. <laughs> yeah, and that's just a quick interjection. Um, if anybody doubts that he said that, uh, Google it. It's on YouTube. You will find him literally say, corporations are people. Go on, Devin. Yeah, and and when he's actually contending someone who's saying that corporations are not people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyways, one of the interesting things is, and I've got, got it right in front of me on notes, actually. It's uh, an article by Truthout called, Tough Talk for America, a guide to the presidential debates you won't hear. And they bring up a number of things that you that will probably not be brought up at all uh, regarding the presidential debates. And they're numbered from, one, the immediate deficit reduction will wipe, will wipe out any hope of economic recovery. Two, taxes are at their lowest point in more than half a century, preventing investment in, in the maintenance of America's most basic resources. Uh, three, Neither the status quo nor a voucher system will protect Medicare or any other kind of health care in the long run. Four, the U.S. military is outrageously expensive and yet poorly tailored to the actual threats to U.S. national security. And five, the U.S. education system is what made this country prosperous in the 20th century, but no longer. You know, and that's that's always very interesting. Um, and and, and but by the way. Um, there's I, I just recently got an email from uh, Ford TV, which I think everyone should go and check out. It's by uh, Jim Lerier, Le- Le- uh, The Real Purpose of Presidential Debates. It's just like a four-minute segment in the one-hour and eight-minute clip there, I mean, uh, eight-minute lecture that he's giving. And he talks about the real purpose of the uh, presidential debates. Now, I don't... I, I haven't had the chance to watch it myself, but usually the stuff from Ford TV is pretty good and uh, pretty well off at uh, exposing a lot of the faulty faults of the establishment, especially with the two-party system uh, recently with uh, election season. Well, do me a favor, Devin, and give that link in the chat room. Um, and oh, yeah, most definitely. And meanwhile, I'll move on to Gregory. 
Ah. Well, I don't know why you invite me on these political shows when you know I'm so far out of my element with this stuff. But um, I'm sitting here listening to this. You know, I'm 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 at a disadvantage because I don't follow politics all that much. Um, but the the thing that comes to mind with all of this, the elections, the debates, the 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 conversation that's going on, the arguing, the you know, the lying, uh, all this stuff. I, I I defer back to what George Carlin said, and uh, when he talks about voting and things, and he says, you know, go ahead and, and do your thing, go vote. You'll feel good for a while. Um, me, on the other hand, I'll be sitting home doing essentially the same thing. Only when I get done masturbating, I'll have a little something to show for it. <laughs> and that's kind of the way I look at this whole thing. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of verbal masturbation going on. There's a lot of, uh, you know, this talking points here, talking points there. Who who do you believe? Who's telling the truth? Who's saying what they think the public wants to hear uh, just to put themselves in a position of of the no, of knowing what it is they're actually talking about, which we know they half the time don't. Um, but a, a, another point that I think it's important to bring up is um, a lot of people tend to focus um, on the person, on, on the president or whoever it may be as being the problem or the solution to the problem. And, in my view, and from what I've learned since I've been exposed to all these ideas, is that couldn't be farther from the truth because it's not the people that are causing the problems. It's the system that is the problem. And a lot of these people that are in their bubble, in this system, actually believe, actually wholeheartedly believe that what they're saying, what they're doing, what they're proposing is the right thing to do. As much as some of the more objective uh, onlookers look at the whole thing in a big picture format and say, you know, it, it, it's just it makes no sense. Uh, none of this stuff makes sense. It's all just verbal masturbation. And it's and it's kind of designed not to make sense. Um, and that's kind of the reason why. I mean, like I even think there's any value in talking about it is that we have to learn, you know, from the tactics that are being used against us also so that we can educate other people about it. You know, one of the things that I, I do to break the matrix, so to speak, uh, is, you know, to try to get people to be aware of the various manipulation tactics. And that's actually uh, something that Devin linked us that I'll be reading uh, over the course of this part of the conversation from NPR is how politicians get away with dodging the question. Um, right. And the stuff that you just talked about, Thunder, like reminds me of the, the subject of Sheeple episode that you and I and uh, a couple of other people did forever ago that is still my favorite episode of uh, V-Radio. Um, is just that, you know, like you said, on the person. And what do they even know about the person? In most cases, they don't know anything. It, it comes down to, like, you know, stupid things, like I'm going to vote for this person because they're black, I'm, or I'm not going to vote for that person because they're black. Uh, I'm going to vote for this person because they're a woman, or I'm not going to vote for this person because they're a woman. Uh, you know, this guy... Or, or, 
or, Go ahead. or I'm going to pre- or I'm basically going to print uh, someone in presidential candidacy so that way we can get uh, a woman in Congress. You know, someone actually pitched that as a reason why she would vote for Obama because she wants more women in Congress. Not that they're qualified. She says she wants more women in Congress. <laughs> right, and that's and it's not to say that any of those reasons. I mean, it's just the, the problem is it's just that the average citizen. I mean, also like you said, the system. The system is not even set up for the way we do things. We tend to be focused a lot on the president. So let's just assume for a moment, and I know this is a big ass umption, um, <laughs> that the system in any way works. Okay, Even if it was working properly, it, just paying attention to the president every four years does nothing. As you're finding out with the fact that the anytime the Congress is dominated by one party or the other, they act to block the president if that president is not of the same party. Most people don't even know who their congressman is. Most people don't even know who their senator is. And if you don't pay any attention to those races, electing the president, it's like I guess we're still locked in that monarchy mentality or something, and we think we're just electing our king. But even if the system was working the way it's supposed to work, you could not get away with only paying attention to the presidential election and expect to have a government that functions. Not in the Democratic Republic that the United States Founding Fathers created, anyway. Um, now, I do want to ask uh, this point, just because I'm curious on the opinions of the people on the call, about my kind of, I mean, it's just an analysis on my part. I have no evidence to base it, but, um, like, Gregory, what do you think about the point that I made in regards to uh, the, all this emphasis on trying to make it look like the White House is covering up uh, that, that it, Al-Qaeda supposedly did that attack in Libya, you know, does that sound feasible that, you know, that this is just something they're trying to push to, you know, basically to further make these wars look viable to keep oh, the, the fear I mean, of terrorism alive? Sure, sure. I mean, they, they've got to keep the fear alive uh, for the American people to actually think that their vote or their decision-making, you know, has some effect on quote-unquote terrorism but i I keep hearing that word al-qaeda come up a lot Mm -hmm. and correct me if i'm wrong but i mean peter covered this in in zeitgeist addendum i believe where he said al-qaeda is this myth because isn't that the wasn't that the name of some database or something back in the 80s or so so how did it become or how did it transpire from a, just a, data, a name of a database into an actual group of human beings doing whatever they're doing? Well, that's actually something that I brought up. Oh, and um, do me a favor, Gregory, and mute when I'm talking, because for some reason I'm coming through on your side. Um, anyway, uh, I brought up that in The Power of Nightmares, the BBC documentary, uh, they cover all of that. There is a small group of people that are known to be what you call al-Qaeda, but they're essentially propaganda ministers into themselves. They make themselves look a lot bigger than they really are. Uh, and that's like even on mainstream British television. You know, it's it's not like it's a big super secret thing. Um, so in regards to that topic, uh, Devin, what do you think? Um, yeah, to be perfectly honest, that's basically what's going to be happening here with the whole... Uh, Fear and terrorism or the only Al Qaeda thing that they, you know, that like Gregory said, that they definitely have to keep the fear alive. And one of the reasons why that they have to do that is they have to distract the American people uh, in an attempt to make sure that they don't take uh, 
you know, care of other things or make sure that they don't pay attention to other things that are happening. Like, for example, right now I just got a – I just opened up an email right now. Uh, it, it's not, it's another one from an NPR basically stating that Obama, Romney on taxes, similar plans, few details. Now, I haven't gotten a chance to read this yet. When you got it over me, I was just going to glance over it. But from what I'm seeing here is that the tax plans that they seem to have are pretty damn similar as far as uh, Romney and whatnot. And, and that's always been an hilarious talking point amongst uh, Democrats and liberals who attempt to say that, oh, you know, they're nothing alike. Well, wait a second. Here's something that's alike. The tax plans are pretty similar. Now, uh, you know, you, I would say take this with a grain of salt because I'm just getting around to reading this. So, you know, don't take it on, you know, on face value. I would definitely go ahead and research this. But this being said here, this Al-Qaeda thing to me sounds like more or less trying to uh, distract people and distract uh, the voters who were going to vote for their own party on that rather than looking at, wait a second, what, what's up with these taxes? Why are they so similar? You know, And that's, you know, it, it's basically to distract them from other things, so they can basically just keep ramming the dildo in, you know? <laughs> okay. Ouch. Yeah, so uh, meme um, on the topic of uh, keeping Al-Qaeda alive. And the funny thing is when we say keep fear alive, it reminds me of that really funny thing uh, – you know, the rally to keep fear alive from the Colbert Report. Oh, when, yeah, right. When Jon Stewart and Colbert did that, that thing. So, But, yeah, go ahead and comment. Well, when I introduced myself, I called myself an information theorist, which no one ever paid me to do. So uh, I don't know how true it is. But it, was, it struck me how useful a model it is to observe the world. Uh, we start with the notion that uh, Obama specifically, is to blame because he didn't know al-Qaeda was going to attack in Libya. And that's the narrative, right? Right, right before that, we were talking about debates and how uh, we're going to focus on a very limited set of issues uh, because they're all the average voter's brain can handle anymore. Go back to Edward Bernays, the scientific dictatorship, marketing, uh, and now bring it into the modern neurology and information theory that uh, hopefully everyone is studying a bit. And see that people are, have, have allowed themselves, some people have allowed themselves to become very easy to manipulate. And I get to observe it quite a bit, watching people watch TV, and then watching them come out and talk to me about the things they saw on TV. And it is such a direct connection between, in my observation between the executive of Fox News the you know the the legal department of MSNBC and how they observe the world and in the information that comes out the other end which is someone's mouth right so now we're yeah. at we can really look structurally what happened in in Libya is a coup a counter revolution people are mad for any number of reasons and a sophisticated geopolitical view accepts the reality of it uh you mentioned we came from Ron Paul. Ron Paul would call it blowback. <laughs> right. you know, no surprise. It's a pretty well understood global phenomenon, uh, and European and Asian media covered it in, in detail. We know it really went down in Libya, uh, going all the way back. Uh, but we we can see, we can observe in the American psyche that these people are like, uh, well, I do hate you. You know, gays shouldn't be allowed to marry, and it's such an irrelevancy. Right. And what it is is indica uh, really indicative of how dumbed down our society has become. And it, it's not 
It's, that's why Fox News acts in the open. They turn and they look and they go, I can't believe people are eating this up. And they're right. They are. They really are. And there it is. There's your America, folks. You know, um, it's up to us to change it. But the but the way the information is driving it, the way it's market economics causing some brains to wither and die, it's perfectly it's right there in the chemistry. Uh, and it's hard to argue that you're going to blame Fox News for exploiting the idiot when you don't blame P.T. Barnum for the same thing. For sure, for sure, and that's one of the reasons why I pointed out that you know the you know if you go, if you turn on Rachel Maddow or you know Keith Olbermann, you know you're going to get the same level of spin. You know you're going to get the you know everything the right does is bad. Um, you know, and obviously I tend to lean more in the favor of one over the other, but at the same time I keep my mind of the fact that we're dealing with corporate-owned media and. Although the corporate-owned media still has it in them that they they will be more interested, um, you know, in pushing you know one agenda over the other, but it doesn't change the fact that they also need to keep us engaged in this in this circus. The idea that if we get involved in the Obama versus Romney thing, that we might actually be able to make some kind of real changes. When the reality is, it's just like a gladiatorial. It, it's worse than gladiatorial. Somebody brought up like that. It's like pro wrestling. You know, as in, we're all caught up in the story, even though the people in charge have already figured out who's going to win. And even though, I mean, even if there's I mean, even if there's no voter fraud, which I, I'm going to get into that in a minute, too, because there are some things that are making me predict some voter fraud. Like, um, But, you know, even if there was no voter fraud, kind of like Peter pointed out in Zeitgeist Addendum, you know, how is it that we end up, like, you know, given this very small amount of people to choose from? You know, uh, who all have basically the same worldview on a lot of very critical issues. And then, as you pointed out, we end up arguing about gay marriage. We end up arguing about abortion. We end up arguing about a bunch of issues that don't that are well important on their face. They never change due to the president anyway. So it, it's like it's just we 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 invest so much energy, for example, in having a pro-life or a pro-choice president or whatever, as if that's going to change. But the entire time I've been alive, it's not even been close to changing you know, due to any president. So it's these things that they keep us thinking about um, that, you know, that they work on uh, that to keep us from thinking, you know, about the things that are actually going on, you know. And you're only going to get any real, like, controversial news if they can find a way to spin it to be, you know, one person or the other's fault. You know, and and that's... Go ahead. Well, and... uh... So we don't limit ourselves to just politics. It's the same thing with iPhone and Android, Coke, Pepsi, Cowboys and Indians, uh, us versus them. It's just their mind hacks. Uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson brought up a great point. He said, uh, you know, when you go to like a magic show and the guy pulls a quarter, pulls a rabbit out of the hat, he says he's not performing magic. He's hacking your brain. We should be called. We should call those like brain screw ups or something because there's nothing unique happening on stage the place where the thing goes wrong is inside your head when you think you see that hand move and you expect the coin to be there that's you making the mistake not the magician so you can't really blame the politicians for setting up these false dichotomies you can't really blame coke and pepsi for trying to monopolize and compete against each other because it's just the it's the simplest way to engage in price fixing right and who was it, Rothschild, who said, uh, give me control over the nation's money supply, and I don't care who makes the laws? It's, right. it's exactly that. You're dealing with the raw economic reality of unfettered free market capitalism devoid from a moral basis. These people are just – it's the the cannibals 
consuming everything in their path, and it's an emergent function of economics. And surf the wave. Yep. <laughs> Echoing through you, Devin, just so you know. Um, I actually wanted to add something to that. Uh, there's, a bit of psychology, there's a bit of psychology actually going on with this left versus right, this whole false psychotomy where people just eat up information, really. And uh, <clears throat> there was a recent uh, article actually published uh, in the uh, Psychological so Science and the Public in Interest um, uh, it's an article called Misinformation, Its Correction, uh, Continued Influence, and Successful Debiasing, uh, where it talks about uh, numerous instances of, uh, of, of biased, um, uh, biased references, of biased information that we tend to go to, why this information is so successful. And one of the things that they ended up uh, concluding from this article and uh, various references from psychology to psychotherapy to, uh, to studies in neuroscience uh, they basically conclude that one of the reasons why this information is so successful is because that it takes more more power, more energy, uh, essentially, to analyze and to configure and to critically think about an issue more so than it is simply to just gobble it up and buy it all on its own, really. So there's a bit of psychology playing into this, and we need to kind of understand. This is why I say that psychology and neuroscience uh, and, and uh, things like cognitive uh, bias theory and whatnot, uh, all these different sciences that, that have to do with how we think, why we think the way we think, and how we eat up information is very important because then once we understand these issues, we can actually sort of work against our bias rather than sort of working for our bias, which is essentially what's happening with this red team versus blue team bullshit. For sure. Um, we just added Ray Powell to the call. Uh, <laughs> Ray, did you have any comments on this? Neil, I, I haven't heard enough to get up to speed yet. Sorry. No problem. Hi, Ray. Yeah. Hey, what's up, Chris? <laughs> We're having a, a revolution broadcasting reunion all of a sudden, but um, all right. Um, so let me go ahead and actually move on to uh, you know, a fresh topic now that we've covered this a lot. Um, I'm actually going to move on now to uh, world news, although I will be coming back to something local in a bit that's more relevant to Occupy. Um, we're going to be, I'm actually talking to somebody who's planning on coming on to kind of be a correspondent to discuss this issue because he's on the ground in Spain as we speak, um, during the protests that are going on over there. Now, one thing I would have to say before I start to read this article, uh, about this topic is these are definitely not what I would call peaceful protests. <laughs> I mean, they're throwing Molotov cocktails at the cops. You know, I, I totally understand, though. I mean, we're dealing with a different kind of protest over there. I mean, they're trying to basically encircle the government buildings and stay there until the, the Spanish government resigns. Like, they, they are, they've set their bar really high, and um, it's, it's, they're definitely, I mean, it, it's just, it's getting out of control. Um, and by no means am I suggesting that I, you know, I oppose the protest or anything to that effect, but we've definitely reached a level there. And Greece... Uh, the situation is is really not much better, um, you know. So, and they're all. This is mostly all anti-austerity protests. That being, you know, that uh, the government has decided, hey, our budget's inflated, so let's start with the stuff that's supposed to benefit the poor first, and then work our way up a little bit. Um, and that's actually kind of becoming a, a common theme nowadays. It's like you know, just like outsourcing, downsizing. You know, oh, you're right, the budget's not balanced, so let's start with 
you know, the things that are the benefits for the poor and continue to, you know, give tax cuts to the rich so that we can, quote, unquote, balance the budget somehow, which doesn't make any sense at all. But um, let me go ahead and read this article, uh, and then we'll comment from there. Greece looks headed for a fall, and Spain isn't far behind. The protests in those two countries yesterday tell us anything uh, from Reuters. Oh, and by the way, this uh, article is from American Thinker. Uh, demonstrators have clashed with police in the streets of Athens and Madrid in an upsurge of popular anger to new austerity measures being imposed on two of the Eurozone's most vulnerable economies. In some of the most violent confrontations on Wednesday, Greek police fired tear gas at hooded rioters hurling petrol bombs. That's Molotov cocktails for us Americans. As thousands joined the country's biggest protest in more than a year. The unrest erupted after nearly 70,000 people marched to the Greek parliament chanting EU IMF out. Uh, on the day of the general strike against further cuts demanded by foreign leaders, uh, lenders, uh, quote, we can't take it anymore. We are bleeding. We can't raise our children like this, said Dina Koku, a 50-year-old te- 54-year-old teacher and mother of four who lives on 1,000 euros a month. That's about 1,250 a month. Uh, In Madrid, Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy faced violence on the streets of the capital on Tuesday and and growing talk of secession in Catalonia uh, as he moves cautiously, closing to asking Europe for a bailout, aware that such an action has cost other European leaders their jobs. Yeah, there's actually a part of Spain that wants to secede. Um, In public, Rajoy has been resisting calls to move quickly to request assistance, but behind the scenes he is putting together the pieces to meet the stringent conditions that will accompany rescue funds. Rajoy uh, presents a tough 2013 budget on Thursday, aiming to send a message that Spain is doing its deficit-cutting homework, despite a recession and 25% unemployment. Spain appears on course to miss its public deficit target of 6.3% of gross domestic product this year, and the central bank said the economy continued to contract sharply in the third quarter. Rajoy is facing intense pressure from the Eurozone policymakers to take tougher measures, particularly on freezing pensions. On Friday, Moody's will publish its latest review of Spain's credit rating, possibly downgrading the country's debt-to-junk status. Um, if Rajoy thinks he has problems now with unions and the separatists in Catalonia, wait and see the popular anger that develops against him if he goes the bailout route. He almost certainly must. Spain prides itself on being a major economy, unlike Greece, which is ranked only 15th largest in the EU, 29th in the world. The Spanish economy is the 4th largest in the European Union and is ranked the 12th largest in the world. A bailout from the IMF would be a huge blow to Spanish national pride and give plenty of fodder to the socialists, whose policies caused all the trouble to begin with. Note, um, I don't necessarily agree with everything I read here. (laughs) It is problematic whether Rajoy would be able to push through this austerity budget if he were in response to conditions imposed by the IMF for a bailout. Uh, No such nuance attends the Greek meltdown. Prime Minister Samaras is trying to reach a deal. Somebody's got their mic open. With his socialist coalition partners on another painful round of budget cuts. But the trouble in the streets is not making his job any easier with the IMF, ECB, and EU in Athens this month assessing Greek compliance with budget-cutting targets. So basically, uh, both of these countries are falling apart. I mean, 25% unemployment. I don't know anything about the Greek economy or how it ends up reporting things, but I know that unemployment over here is only calculated based on the people that are currently collecting and does not in any way reflect on people who are no longer eligible for unemployment or who are not eligible in the first place. 
these countries are tearing themselves apart, and as the economies fall apart, you know, due to unemployment, they decide that the the best solution at that point is to start cutting the benefits for the poor, who are not in a position to do anything about it. Um, and that's essentially the the you know we watch as uh, these economies based on the monetary system cannibalize themselves. You know, uh, the, the socialist answer of expecting money to be able to squeeze money out of you know economy that doesn't have any isn't going to work. And the capitalist answer of just deregulating everything isn't going to work. These economies are collapsing on themselves. Um, it's like burning the candle at both ends. Uh, and so now I'm going to open up, you know, for commentary from the people who are on. Uh, Gregory, would you like to start? I not really, but okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I keep. I, I mean, I I hate to keep beating a dead horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, I just find it ironic that all this talk, all these, all these ideas that people keep coming up with to fix things are still rooted in the same system that is inherently broken in the first place. Uh, it, it's the textbook definition of insanity, continuing to do the same thing, expecting a different result. I, I, I wish people would wake up to that simple... It's, Maybe it's just too simple for them. Maybe it's just too simple of a concept for these people to grasp that they continue to try to fix a system that can never be fixed. Literally, can never be fixed. I, I don't get it. It's, it's uh, uh, we're going to get a a pail and try to dump the water out of the sinking Titanic. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. It's it's uh, it's you know moving the deck chairs on the Titanic, as Peter said in in his last thing. Um, right, right. It just it makes no sense to someone that is able to think along the lines of common sense. Which uh, the more we look at this stuff, the more we have to admit that there's just no common sense to all this bullshit. It just it's crazy. Right, Ray. Do you feel uh, since you listened to that article, you're ready to comment? Um, I, I, I got, I really don't have much based on that article. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, other than kind of going the direction Greg did, uh, it's just, um, yeah, the Europeans are really, they're, they're, they're cool with, when, with getting out in the street for whatever reason, they seem to be more able to find the time and energy to get out there and do that in mass, at least in greater proportion than we do. And I think that's great, but generally issues that they're, uh, they're, they're, they that makes them matter really just so silly. Uh, they're just scratching the surface of, of much deeper issues. Um, so yeah, I mean, and that's largely I think what Gregory just said. So no need to repeat that. But um, yeah, we really need to get to some core rethinking of some fundamental things that uh, we've been doing uh, as a, as a you know a planetary species here. And and that's you know until we can get there, until we can come to the realization that we have to go that deep and rethink rethink some fundamental things we're not going to make a lot of progress it's going to or at least progress is going to be very slow and um probably so slow uh from a political sense that it won't be any kind of politics that ultimately create a solution well uh again hi everyone hi yeah go ahead you were next Uh, uh this and this raises the most significant point i got two more than two really smart guys on the line here are telling me uh, none of these political solutions are solutions at all. They're just really uh, uh, 
silly ways to look at the problem. And in fact, you're right, the, the problem is much more structural than that. And it goes back to when we were talking uh, about the, de the debates and Romney saying uh, people are corporations. Uh, talking to people as smart as this, it's easy to see, to explain and to talk amongst ourselves how we could approach economic theory very, very differently than, say, the, the, the foreign lenders to Greece or the Greek government are doing. Uh, and certainly you could argue better than someone, or maybe not better, than someone in the street throwing a bottle filled with gasoline. But then we ask, what is that? And uh, this is, I was less confident in the Zeitgeist movement a couple of years ago, and I want to fail to pick a fight with OWS for the same reason, because uh, I thought it was a bad strategy to push out the Ron Paul supporters that early in the game. Uh, with uh, Peter Schiff going down there and Kokesh trying to get his nose in and all sorts of fun things like that. Because the issue the two have in common, uh, which the technologists and anarchists around them would support, is the idea of constructing alternative money systems that aren't predicated on the fallacy of appeal to authority. Uh, and pushing out a bunch of libertarians and free market people is, is just sort of bad, bad manners in my opinion. But thus we have it is, you know, some people who from Revolution Broadcasting, Ron Paul supporters, anarchists, socialists, the whole bit, uh, addressing this issue from a very high level. And the question I wanted to ask is, how come our, our analysis, how come our observations aren't uh, getting out of the small pond and into the big pond? Uh, and is it a function of that people are filling their heads up with a bunch of nonsense that like Molotov cocktails are the solution? Do they are they just filling up their brain with enough Jersey Shore and I don't know porn to prevent themselves <laughs> from being able to step back and look at a bigger picture and start thinking about information theory, monetary theory, and moving forward quickly so we don't get bitten in the ass? Well, this kind of comes back to what Devin said earlier in regards to the fact that there is a certain psychology to it. Um, people are conditioned to believe that uh, that there are people who get paid to give them the news and then they'll let them tell them everything and. Uh, they don't want to be involved in political conversations. We've also talked about the fact that our society is, oddly enough, designed in such a way that uh, political conversations and religious conversations are two things that you should not have, and it is considered rude that if you try to do so. Um, and we are geared in such a way that – and I think that's completely by design, to be honest. Um, after, like you said, Edward Bernays, we discussed you know, the various ways that society is controlled, and that's one of the reasons why I think that Paying attention to the uh, the election cycle just as an education in how uh, propaganda works and how it is used to convince us that you know we're actually making some kind of a difference. I mean, you know, what, what did we get told in 2008? It was change we could believe in uh, was the big slogan, and I had to point out to people all the way back when we were doing the revolution broadcasting thing that that was the same slogan Bill Clinton used. And that it was extremely ironic that Bill Clinton, you know, essentially Hillary Clinton was running against Obama and Obama had essentially stolen the slogan. Um, I brought up my conversation at the time that I had had with friends back when Ross Perot was running against Bill Clinton and, uh, and uh, Bush, Bush Sr., and how, you know, Ross and ironically even Bush were having an intellectual conversation about the state of the economy and how to fix it. And Bill Clinton was playing rock star. You know, he wasn't saying anything of substance, yet the guy won, you know. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest points about the reason why I say to people, you know, people ask me sometimes, you know, why do you promote Stefan Molyneux? Why do you give out links to, 
you know, uh, stuff that is, you know, libertarian or whatever organized. And I said, because I'd much rather people who are conservatives were listening to Stefan Molyneux than Bill O'Reilly, you know, um, because at least Stefan Molyneux and I agree on a great deal of things in regards to the value of human life. You know, we just have a very different approach in our solutions. Um, you know, and I, that kind of plays into what well, you were talking about earlier about uh, how the Occupy Wall Street crowd was not happy with the Ron Paul crowd. And like I did listen to that entire Peter Schiff conversation. I was actually over at Ray's house when I was listening to it, and I was just facepalming, and he was kind of facepalming too. It, Peter's approach to it was not really the best way, meaning Peter Schiff's approach was not the best way to try to talk word- to them. The word "big asshole" comes to mind. <laughs> um, you know, but uh, you know, I think you're making the important point here, Neil, about all this uh, and whatever we talk about in terms of the various different movements. I mean, really, it, we're at the point where we have to understand that any movement that is ready to throw out the status quo is on the same side with any other movement who wants to do the same. Mm-hmm. And we need to. That's just the bottom line, and that's just ought to be common sense at this point. And so that's what I'm saying, you know, about what's going on in Europe. Uh, what's going on with um, Occupy, what's going on with the Liberty Movement, whatever is left of it. Um, you know, it, all of these things, it, we're talking about a major uh, throwing out the creeps that we have in charge, and I'm not just talking about politically, obviously, um, but uh, and, and, and kind of rethinking some things. We are on the same side. We can debate solutions later because ultimately I don't see how there's going to be any greater you know, globalized, centralized solution than what we already have. Any solution that we come up with is going to be more fragmented anyway. In other words, we're not, you know, if, if there is some kind of, uh, we hit some kind of wall where we're really ready to realize that we got to rethink some things, I think largely uh, our ideas about uh, large governments and, and our support of them and their, their ability to, to centrally tax and maintain control is largely going to be gone. And at that point, we have the opportunity again to start rebuilding from the community up. And I think at that point, we're really, it doesn't matter, you know, if you're a free market um, libertarian type, uh, well, then you can find other free market libertarian types to commune with, essentially, uh, for lack of a better word, but to to create community with, to to kind of maybe um, live in a localized economy with. Whereas if you have more um, socialist ideas um, and you're into uh, a lot of, common goals and common sharing and common organizing, well, you, you'll find other uh, areas more comfortable. And I think that's ultimately where we're headed, whether we whether we want to or not, whether we plan to or not. We're either going to do it because everything falls to pieces, uh, and that's what we're left with is people restructure looking at their neighbor and say, oh, you live there. Hey, nice to, you know, what are we going to do? we got to eat now. Um, it's kind of thing. Or um, ultimately, we're going to have an organized restructuring of, of government as we know it that's going to result in largely the same thing. So I think we're headed there no matter what. And I don't think the debates about particular solutions or I- idealistic I- you know, concepts that are only ideas. You know, we can go on all day long about Ayn, Ayn Rand and, and her perfect libertopia. Uh, and I'm sure that's a great lifestyle for a lot of people. And it's, I'm sure it's, I know for a fact it's not a great lifestyle for a whole other group of people. And that's okay. I think if we could just make it so that it was safe to agree to disagree, that would probably work. Um, the problem is, is that I've noticed this, uh, being somebody who's been in many different activist groups, is that people tend to take it really damn personally if someone else doesn't like their solution. Um, and in some cases, I think that it's, you know, okay, of course, at the end of the day, 
you know, zeitgeist movement members are not going to agree on economic theory with libertarian activists. It's not going to happen. That doesn't mean that we can't both, you know, be involved in, you know, end the Fed, obviously, because those two groups agree on those things. It doesn't mean that they can't go to the same, uh, you know, anti-war protest rallies if they want to. You know, it doesn't mean that they can't go, you know, to these other things, I guess would be the point, you know, it's like I said to, to Stefan Molyneux when I met him on the show the first time, wouldn't it be great if we essentially did represent the right and the left and that, you know, we weren't dealing with a bunch of people who are just talking in in totally, you know, like cotton candy terms, like Chris said earlier. Um, you know, but either way, I think that the biggest thing at the end of the day is that it doesn't need to be necessarily that, you know, obviously we're going to have different discussions about solutions. I think that what needs to stop is that we need to get to a point where it doesn't sound like in order for us to get our solution that we have to, you know, find a way to destroy the other people involved in the conversation. Because one thing that, what, you know, we should understand, and I've, I've said this all along, um, you know, even back in the days when I was a libertarian, was that all this fighting that we do, you know, like with the Green Party activists or the, you know, the Occupy Wall Street activists fighting with the Ron Paul activists or whatever, you know, the one thing that the 1% has in common is they're all on the same page. And we're going to end up bickering so much about this stuff that we're all going to end up in the same FEMA camps. <laughs> and then we'll be all thinking to ourselves, well, gee, I guess it's a good thing we had that, you know, long, never-ending debate between activists that got us all personal, you know, and, and jumping up and down on each other. Because uh, meanwhile, the quote-unquote men behind the curtain, as Peter calls them in the Zeitgeist films, you know, were just kind of laughing at us while we were fighting each other. Um, and it, and don't get me wrong, there, there there are still valid conversations to have, you know, in regards to, you know, solutions for the future. But I do think that there's definitely a positive note to be made on the on the issue of trying to find better ways to communicate with other activists. Um, so, speaking well, about... I think, I think you're touching on a really important ahead, point. That all of you have actually touched on a really important point without actually getting to the point that we're all look. We're all human beings. We all there. Where where are the commonalities? Why why is that not the focus? Why why is the focus on our differences? Why not our similarities? Look, we all breathe air. Uh, we need air, clean air, clean water. Uh, we need food to sustain us. Uh, clothing, uh, some type of shelter. These are all things that we have in common, all needs that we all have in common as human beings on this planet. Why is that not addressed more often? Because the reason these people are throwing bombs and, and, and uh, you know, Occupy, all these different groups that are protesting and, and uh, whatever it is they're doing through violent means or whatever, at the, at the end of the day, they all have needs that are not being met, okay? And those unmet needs are then manifesting themselves in the behavior. Why is nobody addressing that? Why is nobody saying, well, look, why are, the, why are all these people trying to fight us? Why are all these people angry? What's going on? What is it that they need that is not getting met? What is it? And I, why is that not more of a conversation? That's what I'd like to know. No, that's, a great, that's an excellent point, Gregory. Well, yeah, and I think that's that's exactly what I'm saying as well, is that it really doesn't matter. Our differences in solutions aren't going to matter because we're not going to implement a global solution. We are not near the stage where we have the ability to implement global solutions on any, in any level. There is not enough trust factor at all, and it doesn't matter who it is. 
Uh, and I, and I, like I said, I think that there's no trust left even in the governments that have grown to the outrageous size that they currently are. There, there is no trust left on a global level. All right. Not only that, but the, the, the value systems, the value systems of the population have have just shifted into this weird uh, consumer mentality. Uh, he who dies with the most toys wins kind of thing. And, uh, you know, that, that's another conversation that I, you don't hear a lot is uh, this, <laughs> this culture, this, this, this human species needs some value system therapy really bad. You know, actually, uh, I've been pretty happy with the fact if that... If I uh, can add to that... Well, real yeah, real quick, quick, let me make my comment, and then I'll bring you on, oh, Devin. Um, uh, when I was on Free Talk Live, I got interviewed on Free Talk Live, and uh, I was actually very happy um, and ironically surprised that uh, even liber- market libertarians are beginning to admit, for example, that uh, advertising is brainwashing, um, that a lot of things have been done to make us overabundant consumerists. Uh, Jacob Spiney, uh, who some of you might remember from debates with Brandy Hume, uh, recently admitted that... Uh, you know, we need even if we had, you know, his free market that sustainability needs to be addressed because and that it's not being addressed and so for the other and I said, Well that's that's very refreshing because most free market libertarians I talk to don't want to talk about, you know, sustainability. They they think the market'll work it all out. And he's like, Oh no, absolutely not. You know, that that's that's insanity, you know. So it is good that that that, that, that there are there is kind of a middle ground that's being achieved, at least on the issue of sustainability. Now go ahead, Devin. Um, I, I did kind of want to uh, say something about the article there, but you guys brought up something so much uh, more interesting, really. Um, the question that Gregory asks is why exactly do we seem to be fighting so much over over petty differences when there's so much things that we have in common as human beings? And in many ways, this actually kind of goes into what I was talking about in understanding uh, evolution and regarding psychology, you know, cognitive biases and whatnot. And one of the reasons why that is is that this is, you know, something that Peter Joseph uh, went on in one of his early lectures I think, I'm not too sure whether it was uh, where you know where are we now or where are we going. I'm not too sure which one it was though. But he referred to something called evolutionary baggage, and in a lot of ways, this actually this actually comes back to our evolutionary psychology as to how we survived as a species during the you know during the Neolithic before the Neolithic revolution when we were hunter gatherers. It was basically. Uh, it was basically an imperative that we must keep the ideas that we do, we must keep the culture that we do in order to survive, really. And in a lot of ways, that still kept over all the way, all the way into the Neolithic Revolution, to the development of city-states and whatnot, and all the way up into Roman empires and so forth. And uh, and and the usual, the usual reference before the development of these city-states. It was that you know that they kept within close knit groups. They didn't expand too much. And once the city states came about, it was an imperative that they expand because if they didn't expand, essentially that they would get taken over by a by another force. But now with the development of technology, you know we've had so much, you know we've had 
so much of a need to be able to survive by clinging to our ideas and our knowledge of how the world really works because that's how we were able to survive. But we don't need that anymore, you know. Now it's a different world. Now, because of the development of information technology, you know, the way in which we survive as a species and which we survive as a country is to have information open to the public, information being uh, being available to everyone, making sure everyone is educated. And back then, that was an imperative. It was that we have to keep the ideas that we need. And really, this is what I view this as is more or less uh, evolutionary psychological baggage that we've had and we haven't been able to shed, really. And, uh, you know, this might go into the whole nature versus nurture thing. I would say this is part of semi-human nature, you know. In other words, human nature in the sense that we've had it so much because we need it to to survive, but not human nature in the point where we have, where it's in our genes, where we have to have it all the time, you know. And I could probably go on how, you know, uh, cognitive bias works, bias works, and neuroscience and whatnot, but that would be <laughs> definitely a topic take for another show. <laughs> and I've got one more one more news item we need to talk about. So um, I guess uh, to, to top off what we've been discussing in regards to the article that we were discussing, um, we're looking at a point now where uh, uh, unemployment, whether caused by technology or outsourcing or both, uh, is causing you know massive poverty, which is then in turn putting a great deal of strain on any social programs that were created to give people help when they're in trouble. Um, the rhetoric you're getting out of the right camp on this, at least from Obama, or not from Obama, from Romney, uh, you know, like you heard in his 47% video, you know, these people think they're entitled to this and entitled to that, you know, is to paint a picture of anybody who's in poverty as if we're all lazy people who don't want to work, when the reality is is that the poverty is being created by the same policies that people like Romney, for example, advocate when it comes to outsourcing to countries where they pack you know, a dozen women into one room and stick them on barrack-like bunk beds, you know, um, and the, the people are so desperate for work that they have to set up armed guards to keep people from coming in. That's what, that's the, I think, honestly, is the final agenda, is to push us to the point that we're so desperate that they can undo all of the achievements of the labor movements from previously and then eventually, you know, uh, replace us with machines as fast as they can. And eventually those systems pull themselves apart. Um, and I think that's kind of like what you're seeing, at least in my opinion anyway. The Greece and Spain issue is really kind of an example. They're just a little further ahead than we are along the same lines, you know, as far as the things that are happening there. So. Um, talking about the Occupy movement, uh, we're now going to talk about something a little more inter uh, interesting about stuff that was going on with that. Uh, many of you maybe uh, remember, this was actually, by the way, reported by the Young Turks recently. Uh, many of you may remember a video of a police officer uh, who was uh, basically in riot gear at an Occupy protest on a university campus. And the guy literally just took his can of pepper spray and these were protesters who were just doing a sit-in. They weren't, you know, making any moves. They were just refusing to leave. And so the campus police officer took his pepper spray and just hosed them down, like as if he was, like, spraying for bugs or something, like as if he was fogging up, you know, using a fogger. I mean, just hosed them down. These are not protesters who are they're grabbing and are, you know, and are fighting with. They're not protesters that are throwing anything at anybody. I mean, it was so obvious what was going on. You know, he just just felt the need to just walk down the line of like 
20 or so students and hose their faces down with pepper spray. Um, and the funny thing is that's now finally been settled. I'm going to read a little bit here. US, UC Davis students and alumni who were pepper sprayed by campus police during a protest 10 months ago were pleased with the nearly $1 million settlement the university system has agreed to pay. Each of the 21 students and alumni will receive $30,000 apiece. The University of California announced Wednesday the agreement, which must still be approved in a federal court, also calls for the uh, university campus to pay a total of $250,000 to the plaintiff's attorneys and set aside a maximum of $100,000 to pay up to $20,000 to any other individuals who joined the class action lawsuit by proving that either they were arrested or directly pepper sprayed, uh, the Young Turks reported. Um, now, the funny thing about this is that it costed them over a million dollars to investigate, which is ridiculous. I mean, like, investigate. God, you could have paid me five bucks. This is actually the guy that the Turks thing says. And, and you watch the YouTube video and you got your investigation right there. I, I don't understand. But, but let me rattle off the numbers for you guys, okay? Of the money that got paid out to investigate this, 320000 to the Munger, Tolls, and Olson law firm. That's for the lawyers. $88,686 in salaries and other fees. $119,714 for crisis management services. 445879 to the investigators. And $230,256 for internal affairs investigation. So it cost them a million dollars to investigate one cop spraying down 20 kids that was videotaped, okay? Um, and now all of these kids are getting, you know, some kind of cash paid out reward, you know, about 20000 to 30000 And um, I, I think it's good that, you know, quote-unquote justice is done, although I find it silly that they had to go through all of that. Um, I know that the police officer in question, if I remember right, he resigned, um, you know, but... Uh, this is just, you know, once again, we're, you know, we're definitely changing gears from our previous point, but I wanted to ask everybody to take a moment and comment on this. I'm going to start with Gregory. Ooh, me again. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, now this was a campus police officer. This yep, is yep. not a state or, or local. Okay. Yep, so, yep. I, I mean, you know, they spent a million dollars investigating. Did they ask the question of this officer as to why, 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 you know, what, what was going on with you? What was, what, what, what was going on with you at that moment that you felt the need to do that? Did you feel threatened? Uh, where's your evidence? I mean, did they, was that anywhere in, in their investigation? I'm, I'm kind of curious about that because it doesn't seem to be, um, and 30 grand to each student that got pepper sprayed in the face, boy, that, that, talk about another slap in the face that, you know, if you want to attach a monetary uh, value to what they had to go through, I think $30,000 is an insult, in my opinion. Well, yeah, I, I know that uh, having been, you know, <laughs> involved with pepper spray situations at different protests, I have to say, you know, the guys in Occupy Detroit would sure have loved to have been given $30,000. But no, I agree totally with what you're saying. That was mostly a joke on my point, but... You know, most of these people don't get anything, which is why I'm surprised anything happened. But what, what's crazy about this is that I honestly think that the only reason anything happened here is because there was money to be made in something happening. You know, and not for the students. I mean, obviously, 
they spent a million dollars investigating this. I, I think the only reason it happened is because of all the different groups that were going to make money on it. Um, yeah, um, I, yeah, I mean, you know, any any one of those 20 students could go to a restaurant, choke on a bone, and sue the restaurant and probably get $100,000. <laughs> You know, for for a, for something that was unintentional, and yet, in your face pepper spray gets them thirty grand. It's just right, it's right. Laughable. It's it's that's why I'm giggling. It's just it's just laughable that that shit like that goes on. It's it's it just is. Chris. Uh, uh yeah, I think it's pretty clear that uh, what he was doing was spraying cologne to uh, overcome the smell of the dirty hippie communists who are getting a free education <laughs> from California, which is why you got to vote for Mitt Romney in America. <laughs> America. <clears throat> yeah. Well, you talk about the market economics of it. I just gave you 50 million consumers. Right, right. right. You know, so you're right. Yeah, make money off of it. It's a divisive issue because, but I mean, you know, go to Compton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure, it, it, sure. It's only interesting because it happened to white kids. <laughs> uh, I'll bet there's a lot of yeah. Occupy Detroit would have loved that comment. No, yeah, and sorry, guys. you're right though. The funny thing is, is that it's interesting that you know they got justice and so many other kids didn't. I mean, I still th- I totally support the protesters though for being involved with what they were doing there. Um, you know, and the fact that and I have to I have to also say that the fact that kids who do come from privilege, still get involved in activism when they really don't have to is is definitely a hats-off situation. You know, I've seen a lot of kids, for example, that, you know, very easily could be, you know, going to college and making six-figure salaries and never spending any time in prison, you know, who are still turning against that lifestyle, and that actually gives me some hope. Uh, Ray, since I know you love police. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, what, what do I say? I mean... Um... I got nothing on this, really. It's just, um, it's just, yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is this stuff's going on all the time. What causes this one to be special? Um, and um, you know, the fact that they got anything is great uh, for them. I hope they, I hope they use that money to uh, further the cause. What that they were there protesting initially, right? Um, you know, because I mean, if we can set some kind of precedence that this is. Um, if this can happen, then this is a great way to raise money for your various causes. Go uh, out there, get pepper sprayed, and raise thirty grand for your cause. I think Real you're, I think you're dreaming, Ray. I think you're dreaming. <laughs> I think they're going to take that money, go back, and have to repay the loan for their college tuition. Yeah, seriously. I mean, one pepper spray in the face for a free year of college sounds pretty good. To, like, what can I can I trade it in for a Mercedes? <clears throat> yeah, exactly. I mean, shit, I'd do it. If we could raise thirty grand for my favorite cause, I'd gladly go get pepper sprayed right now. Yeah, who, so. who on this phone call would not take thirty k for a pepper, pepper spray in the face? I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> we even got a comment from the peanut gallery. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I hope I hope the trend continues. I don't think it will. Uh, I, you know, I think that whoever whoever was involved in this from the uh, government. Authority status quo side is saying, "Whoa, boy, did we mess up? Uh, we can't have this going on." Um, and we need, and not in terms of not in terms of the cops spraying them, of course, but in terms of them actually losing the court case. Well, I wonder so, if a part of that solution would just be uh, instilling uh, some requirements for police that they have intelligence and decency. Maybe that would be a good start. <laughs> yeah, well, I agree. I'm all for that. I mean, uh, in my opinion. Um, the police officers that we asked to go out there and handle these these uh, situations 
uh, need to be the best of the best among us, man. They need to be the strongest and the brightest, uh, even the best looking, man. I want these guys to be the, the top-notch guys that our society has to offer. They should be the guys out on the street, and they should be well-paid. And um, and when they mess up, they're gonna have to they're gonna have to be forced to fess up to it. But I really think that if you get better quality individuals, um, there's gonna be a, le- a lot less of this um, egoism involved where they just they just have those kind of issues. I'm just pissed off today because my wife yelled at me. I'm gonna take it off on some kids, or or usually and like you like um, Chris pointed out, usually it's not rich white kids that get it taken out on. Um, so. Um, yeah, we need to we need to definitely improve uh, that. But once again, all of this is really just scratching the surface. And if we get time, Neil, I'd love to uh, I'd love to comment on the bomb you dropped at the end of the last subject about the jobs. Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah, we can totally do that. And um, Devin, did you have anything to say on this issue before we go back to that? Not very much, really. I mean, to be honest, like a lot of you actually kind of touched on. Uh, some of the things that I was going to point out, though, but I did want to I did want to say something that wasn't really touched on, which was the amount of cost. And I think people kind of really need to understand how the court system works. And basically, even if you go through the court system uh, and fight something and win it, I remember the fact that I was once given a um, was it a ninety dollar ticket for not having a um, a ticket on the light rail. And what happened was is I actually have this little, uh, I'm eligible for these disability stickers that you stick on your student ID and whatnot um, and all that. But but that time they weren't issuing it. But, however, I was able to get my altar worker, my altar regional worker, uh, to go ahead and put a put a disability sticker on mine so that way I can, make, that way I can get down to college and, and I won't have to pay any fare. Uh, anyways, uh, one day I didn't know that I was supposed to you know, that I was getting these kind of new and whatnot. I one of the times one of the days that I didn't take my sticker with me, um, I left it at home by accident. So I got a ticket, uh we went down to court, we showed us a sticker, didn't have to pay the the ninety dollar uh ticket. But what happened was is that instead of paying the ninety dollar ticket, uh I had to we actually had to pay like twenty five dollars. Just to, just to go through the process of seeing the judge, it's like yeah yeah we have to see you here, here, you know just twenty five dollars pay us and I'm like isn't it's like court costs I mean isn't that what our taxes are for why are they why are they shaking me down for money and twenty five dollars on a uh, on like a ticket that I just end up beating yeah and I, have, I, I approved. The funny thing is, Devin, is they require you to show up or they'll put a bench warrant on you and while you're being required or forced to show up, you have to pay them money. Boy, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, there's all kinds of crap wrapped up in that. You're definitely right about the way the legal system works is so silly. Um, you know, and like, you know, the the fees involved with, oh, you want to get a divorce? Okay, well, give us $300 and we'll think about it. You know, oh, you don't have any money, so you want to file bankruptcy? You know, <laughs> it can cost $1,000 to not have any money and go bankrupt. Um, then, uh, and also, you know, like I, I recently dealt with, a, a, you know, a lawsuit. And um, the funny thing about it was that, you know, they, that this other person is suing someone. So then, you know, that person then has to go pay $25 to three lawyers to evaluate the case. Like, you're not the one who's doing the suing. You're being sued. It was someone else's idea. And now you have to pay 
$25 to three different lawyers who are then going to evaluate your case. You know, like it's you're like it wasn't my idea to you know to be sued. Why am I involved in this? You know, this isn't my motion. I'm not making it. Yeah, they find little ways to make money off of you all the time, and uh, and the whole system is designed to facilitate lawyers. You know, like you go there to get your paperwork to get things done, and and it's obvious the clerks they don't really care for dealing with you if you're not a lawyer. They don't want to explain anything. They don't want to help anyone. You know, and in fact, the more to the point, because they're worried about getting sued themselves. They generally refuse to even explain how you're supposed to, you know, to fill something out. They'll tell you if it's not filled out properly when they're not going to accept it, you know, but uh, they don't, you know, they they will refuse to give you any aid at all. And it, it basically is just a big money scheme. And you, you put on top of that the, the corruption in that system. Like I have a friend, uh, uh, Lana uh, Greenbaum, she's a member of Zeitgeist uh, Michigan chapter, and she's also an activist lawyer. And, you know, she runs into all these situations where, you know, the, the lawyer – and the judge play golf together, you know, so there's no way she's going to win. Like the, it, it's pretty much like, you know, open and shut before you even get in there. Lawyers themselves, they tend to like hang out together. Like I've been, I've watched several cases go down where the two lawyers involved in the case are friends. So they get involved in like some kind of like, you know, deal that they garner and they work out to their own benefit, you know, and their clients are generally not even aware of the fact that these lawyers are, you know, are working together to make more money, you know. Uh, then there's some lawyers who will just kind of, you know, they'll put you up to taking stuff into cases constantly because they get their money regardless of what happens to you. You know, it's the whole system is designed to facilitate corruption from the top. Now, um, we've only got a little bit of time left uh, like 13 minutes. So, Ray, what was specifically did you want to go back on about jobs? All right. Well, you were talking about automation. Sure. And, uh, you know, I think we're doing a disservice to ourselves when we when we try to say that automation in itself is a bad thing. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> let, let me let me make a point. Um, automation itself is not a bad thing. The only time it's a problem is if you're in a system wherein the automation is being utilized to undermine an, um, an economy or to eliminate jobs and without, like, any kind of concern for what's going to happen afterwards. Like, let's say... All right, well, well, that's where you throw me when you use terms like eliminate jobs. That's where it just, like, it leaves my realm of making sense. Well, think about it like this, okay? Well, who wants a job? That's the question. Who <laughs> right. wants, I don't want a job. Do you want a job? Well, you want a job if you have no way to, you know, have no way to support yourself. And unfortunately, right, most but... people are currently connected to the system, you know, like an umbilical cord. That's, you know, we've talked about that even on the North Virginia Patriot right, right. show. I know, but what you're really saying is oh, it, automation is a bad thing when all of the efficiencies that get created in terms of the amount of energy required to invest to have the the, the wanted outcome, mm-hmm. when all those efficiencies that get invested, uh, uh, efficiencies that get created, all go to the central ruling class. Right. And and they do not and they do not find their way into the general society as a whole. Right. Now the efficiency has become a bad thing. Because they are they're only doing it for the sake of themselves and they don't care about any repercussions. They're not doing it to make life better for anyone but themselves. And right. that's that's so where it's it a, a it's a double-edged sword because you know, on one side it they benefit from uh automation and technological unemployment they they benefit from it they their profit margin increases uh on the other side of the of the the, the actual cutting edge of the sword uh 
cuts everybody else who is actually losing that purchasing power, losing that job, unable to support their self and their family. You know, so it's a double-edged sword. And, and Ray, even you and I have agreed about this in the past that you know it definitely we are moving towards a need to get off the grid. And if you want to automate your off the grid technology, have at it. You're doing it, of course, you know, with socially conscious you know motives in mind. It's when people are doing it solely for the point of trying to eliminate any power that the common people have, and and that's basically what they're doing. You know, and that's why you see it. Like they're asking workers to behave more and more like machines in these sweatshops. Sure. Well, that's nothing new. I mean, that's been going on, uh, the trend on that. I mean, there's books written on that subject. Uh, sure. Going back to uh, the beginning of the industrial era. And uh, it, Taylorism, you know, and all that. I mean, this is this is a, a train of thought that, that the power brokers uh, have and the controllers have, have studied very heavily, you know, in terms of, you know, even things, small things like um, let's not uh, give one person – multiple jobs and understand a large picture of what they're doing because then they can think on their own and they can come up with their own opinions and they can that will end up leading to job dissatisfaction if they don't agree with the way we tell them to do it however if you just give them one simple repetitive task they think about nothing and they're actually more satisfied to do their job and they're and supposedly more productive uh these are the kind of thought process that actually get debated in the in the in those circles so yeah it's their intention i mean to me automation is just an application of technology and what i say about technology is the same across all spectrum of technology especially in areas like voting machines where you have a lot of people going around saying that technology is a bad thing i say that technology is nothing more than an extension of the intention of the implementers of the technology so if your intention is to enslave and control mankind, you will use technology to do that. And if your intention is to create freedom and abundance for everybody, you will use technology to do that. So automation in itself is not a bad thing. Automation in itself is not a problem at all under the scenario that, uh, and it's a trend that you and I have looked forward to, Neil, of, of kind of employee-owned corporations and this kind of thing, so that you have a corporation that is very specialized in a very unique automated process that creates huge efficiencies in the marketplace, saves tons of time and energy, but ultimately those profits get distributed across a wide array uh, of, of, of society, of different classes and races and religions and all that good stuff, just because they happen to be involved with this company. And under those scenarios, you're looking at technology used as an application to create abundance for everybody. And in that sense, it's a good thing. All right. Um, Chris, if, go ahead, so, Devin. Sorry, go ahead, Chris. Oh, hey, did the one. Uh, yeah, it heartens me to hear Ray talk about it at a high functioning, uh, at a high economics level. Not Ray has always been highly functioning, uh, because we're talking about economics and the transfer of goods and services for the betterment of mankind, or whatever your personal pleasure is. Uh, in a market where the most of the significant actors who participate in the market with us are well, well-versed in economic theory. So if you're sitting here talking about how come we can't get food to the poor people's mouths, you're asking about shipping uh, issues for corporations the size of Walmart distributing food to those people because they go to Walmart shop. Uh, and so when we approach the issues politically or uh, – Nonprofit and any number of other ways to do it. We're just functionally missing the larger issue of how goods are distributed in a society. 
And then the, the next most important layer for me is understanding that humans have always thought the smartest person ever on the planet is alive right now. And it's a terrible, terrible uh, egoism, a horrendous fallacy to believe that the best ideas ever to have happened or ever will go forward are the ones that we're playing with today. It's very sandbox mentality. So when we're competing against uh, PhDs and chaos theory with a minor in economics for computational resources on the computers used to build the to run the algorithms that are gutting us gutting the human thinkers in the stock market you got to change games you have to start thinking about it a different way and stop thinking you can think as simply as are do we have uh turnips in our garden and yes we do uh or you can think about it in a bigger level of my are my long-term economic strategies uh going to benefit or or uh, be, be a liability in the long run of my economic strategy to my well-being, to the well-being of the people around me, or whatever your other values are. But you must remember, first and foremost, that you're competing against a very sophisticated group of people in a very sophisticated model. Well, Devin, yeah. And when you, go ahead and comment back, Ray, and then we'll go to Devin. Oh, okay, yeah. When you, you, I mean, you got, wow, a lot of points there. But, yeah, when you're talking about that sophisticated group of people, largely you're saying that these group of people and the thinkers in question – um, in other words, the specialists in the highly trained computational models and such are generally working for the controllers. Well, and, and in short, uh, w there's a lot of games we can play. We don't have to step onto their basketball court and start trying to beat them at NASDAQ. You know, we can, well, there's different ways we can approach the economic model. But as long as we confine ourselves to only playing basketball on the NASDAQ court, we're going to get – don't expect to get uh, – come out unscathed unless you're competent to play ball at that level, you know? Oh, correct. Well, I totally agree with that statement for sure. And so it's really a matter of, I mean, it comes down to, like somebody said earlier, it comes down to food and shelter and, you know, kind of abundance in those means that really is, is something we're going to have to turn back to at some point in the near future, I believe. We're going to have to kind of get back to basics. And when it comes to that, um, you start re-looking at the economy from a much uh, uh, more of a micro level, and uh, you know these things, these ideas of Nasdaqs and and uh, complicated uh, exchange formulas of money investment, uh, they're really not viable when you're when people are just trying to eat and, um, and and have some shelter over their head, and and we're likely headed for a more uh, direction like that. And so as people um, you know pull away from that being meaningful to them. Uh, and, and you know, it just won't have meaning in the world anymore as much. So that's what I'm looking forward to. And as we pull away and start to focus on the things that are important, like food and shelter, well, we'll look at, we'll start focusing naturally on where does our food come from? Where do our building supplies come from? Uh, and when we're going to implement uh, efficient ways of creating business supplies, um, let's do it in a manner that uh, everybody benefits, including nature itself. Let's Let's recognize that we don't want to, totally just uh, take every tree out of a given forest because then it's gone forever. Uh, these kind of things are very common sense to anybody who's just um, existing uh, in, in a communal and, and, and open way with, with the things that they see around them. And I, I'm optimistic that's where we're headed. All right. So Devin and then Gregory. 
Um, there's a bit of a there's a bit of a nuance kind of lost here in the whole automation ordeal that I want to point out in the conversation, which is kind of what I wanted to hear from everyone on this issue. Is that yeah, there are people who want to like destroy automation, and, and I mean use automation to destroy jobs and make more money for themselves as well. But then of course you have the uh, sort of neoclassical theory of Say's law, which basically is is this notion that somehow an increase uh, an increase in production will actually increase the amount of, of people employed really now this was debated upon in the 1910s and 1920s during the economic debates of that time when uh, Keynesianism and, and uh, neoclassical economic theory came to arise really and it was really really well refuted um, in a lot of ways in fact I would recommend people go ahead and check out uh, Keynes uh, Keynes's uh, original article on the subject. I don't I don't quite remember what it was what the name of it was though. But if you uh, type into Google uh, Keynes and uh, Say's Law, you'll probably find it pretty fast, or you might find a bunch of commentaries on it. But uh, but but basically, the so there are probably a lot of people, and maybe there's probably more majority than them. Uh, in, in this situation, and where the minority are the ones that want to destroy jobs, uh, so that way they can make more money for themselves and automation and whatever, is that, is that there are people who will probably think that, well, if I create increased production, that will increase the amount of jobs that people will get, you know? And there are people that probably think this way. As a matter of fact, there, there are, uh, you know, there are people in the Austrian economic uh, school that think this way in a lot of ways. There are a lot of free market advocates that I talk to, uh, who, you know, when I ask them, well, what are we going to do about the job issue and whatnot, and they say the market is sorted out. And when I ask them for a specific, they usually uh, give me an example of states law and whatnot, and you know, so forth and so on. And uh, you know that that's kind of the issue. Although interestingly enough, uh, what I do hate, and I just want to make up as a side note, real quick, is that uh, the whole thing with Say's Law, um, with regards to that, I don't know why people still hold on to that. It's it's just been debunked so thoroughly during that debate. Well, let me uh, take a quick moment. I'm actually going to extend the time just a little bit to be sure that Gregory gets to comment as well. Um, and that. Took just two clicks of the mouse. Um, I think that one of the problems with that argument that's gone on forever, because like I had this argument actually with Stefan Molyneux too, uh, because they will actually argue that uh, technological unemployment is a fallacy. That's what they usually do. Um, I finally have managed to get him to to rethink that to some degree. But um, and they say the same thing, for example, about plan obsolescence, and and they generally quote, "Well, you technocrats were saying that back in the nineteen, you know." 20s or whatever and you know or even the 1700s like you thought the cotton gin was going to create massive starvation and all that and you know I point out to them I'm like okay but you're you're talking about you know yes you're right those technocrats were panicking a little bit too fast that doesn't change the fact that you know it was going to become a problem and we are getting to the point where technology is building technology you know uh, when most of those arguments were had uh, we were dealing with the fact that, okay, so there's a new machine that's good for sewing clothing, and it sews more clothing. Well, now there's new jobs to make machines that sew more clothing. The problem is is that there, there there's diminishing returns on the amount of jobs that are created through technology. See, but Neil, you, I can't. I can't. I can't sit here and listen to that. Okay. So how is how is that incorrect? Well, you're saying there's diminishing return on jobs. 
Well, I'm just referring to one. Well, remember we already went over this. <laughs> as right. Far as how many how many jobs are created? Okay. And my next point would be to say, and and most of them are are also agreeing with this, is that we've kind of going to have to get out of the paradigm where we're dependent upon making our essentially using our body for the benefit of someone else. We have to get out of that paradigm being the way that we approach things. Whether you're a free market advocate, whether you're a you know, um, a socialist or a zeitgeist movement, uh, you know, RBE advocate. In general, we are getting to a point where the system is not going to be able to continue to provide uh, labor to be traded for goods and services. You know, we are we are getting to the point where that is no longer, you know, the maximum profitable solution, and that's why you know outsourcing is increasing. In uh, you know, sweatshops are becoming more popular, and they're only going to get more popular as long as it takes for them to not be able to make robots that will work for cheaper than the people that they're packing into those cubicles. Um, Once again, the focus is on jobs. I mean, I'll shut up now. I mean, I know it's Greg's turn, but I just uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> dropping in a footnote or two, so maybe I'll remember to address them. Sure, go ahead. All right, Greg. All right. No, it's <laughs> it's all good. I actually had to take a phone call, so I only heard a little part of whatever it is, so I don't have a comment. What I do have, though, is uh, uh, an actually a funny little clip from a, one of my favorite comedians that will bring us back around to how this show started, which was about Democrats and Republicans, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so um, if you'll afford me a minute and 47 seconds at some point during toward the end of the show, I'll play that clip. I think it'll be entertaining for everybody. Sure, if you sure, can get that to come through your uh, your speaker oh, yeah. clean. Oh yeah, it will. All right, good. Um, uh, well then, if I if if I can real quick, to just add a bit of a source here. Uh, the reason why, like a lot of uh, libertarians and free market advocates, actually say that technological unemployment is a fallacy because of this sort of debate that happened in the 1910s, 1920s, and 1930s with technological unemployment, and then they see that the debate was ended and whatnot, and then they think that you know it was defeated. But actually, there's a great book on this called uh, "On Technological Unemployment and Structural Unemployment Debates." Uh, you know where it actually states within within the first part of it talking about technological unemployment that there was this back and forth going on and the reason why it didn't it was because there was no consensus in the debate. It was because that get this, uh the debate ended because of the increase in job employment, uh, you know, uh, being brought in by World War being brought in by, you know, the New Deal, uh World War One I, I mean World War Two being brought into as well, which increased the jobs there as well. So the debate kind of skidded off at around like uh, I think it was like the 1950s when the last uh, bit of that debate kind of just sputtered out and ended really. So that's kind of one of the reasons why they why they think that it's not because you know technological unemployment is a fallacy. It's because if they think that technological unemployment was uh, was refuted in the 1910s through the 1950s technological unemployment debate. Uh, when in reality, it, 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 there was never consensus reached and people just stopped talking about it because the conditions changed. And that's that's one of the real reasons why they why they tend to bring it up. Well, there are all, there are often um, underlying causes of various economic ups and downs. Um, like for example, there are a lot of people who love Bill Clinton who are not aware of the fact that one of the reasons the economy was so great when he was in charge is because I think it was like the third day he was in office. Uh, it was um, Ed, Alan Greenspan. Um, you know, showed up at the White House and said, um, you know, I don't know what you had planned for the economy, but don't worry about it. I'm going to lower interest rates and I'm going to inflate the currency, and you can take credit for it. You know, like the 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 Federal Reserve created all of the 
supposedly uh, economic surplus that existed during Bill Clinton's time as president. Um, and people don't know that. They just credit it to Bill Clinton, you know, or they, you know, I'm sure that they, they would say, oh, well, yeah, you guys said technological unemployment was a fallacy back before the New Deal. And, you know, and then they, they're they going to leave out the fact that, yeah, the reason there were suddenly all these jobs created was because FDR basically um, enacted what would be the way socialists would do things, which is to say, okay, well, we're going to build infrastructure. We're going to create government jobs, you know, and I agree with Ray that, you know, the jobs thing is also kind of, it, it, it has, it is a, it is the potential of being something that become a red herring. And I've pointed out that especially when, um, when politicians are arguing about job creation, it's so silly because that none of them, none of them are willing to do what uh, would be necessary to actually do it. You know, like you're not going to get another new deal. They're not going to, you know, create massive jobs. You could never get away with that anymore. Um, they're not also not going to uh, put tariffs on imported goods uh, because all the corporations that are making all the money off of those imported goods that are made with sweatshop labor would never tolerate it, and they own the Congress. You know, um, And they're not willing to make outsourcing illegal for the same reasons. So anybody who tells you they're going to create jobs <laughs> is lying to you. All right. Can I go now? Yes, you can go now, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm growling and grumbling over here the whole time. I think, you know, really the just the whole context is what – it's just the terms that you're addressing this in is just really foreign to me, uh, you know, coming from a free market libertarian kind of background. Not that I ever appreciated those labels and certainly don't now, but – I mean, I think largely that that can be cleared up in this, that when we talk about um, planned obsolescence and, um, you know, technological unemployment, okay, um, you know, first of all, it's a bit like, you know, Keynesian economics to me, which is it's just a bunch of nonsense. It's just a bunch of complicated, uh, really smart-sounding terms that really don't mean a whole lot in the end. I think largely um, what – what the problem is in when you get into debates like the Stefan Molyneux of the world um, is that they act like the free market is a real thing. Mm -hmm. The free market is nothing more than a theory. Right. And, and, and it would be a huge uh, stretch for anybody to ever say that there was ever such a thing as a free market since the beginnings of interaction of human society. Uh, you know, in, in other words, when we stopped being hunter gatherers and started, uh, language in the division of labor. From that point forward to our you're gonna have a tough time convincing anybody that there was there is ever or ever could be such a thing as a free market. No, it's a contrivance. It's a it's we invented it. Right, right. So so, so that's the problem with the whole argument. Since this thing doesn't exist really, or you'd have a hard time proving that it exists even, what are we talking about here? Um now if in this theoretical free market um uh, existing, I mean, the closer you get to the free market, the more unreal things like planned obsolescence and technological unemployment become. Well, the only problem with that, um, it, what would need to change, this is something even Spiney acknowledged, was that um, the, the whole thing hinges on the idea that the consumer is going to be the arbiter uh, that the consumer is going to be the one who decides that planned obsolescence doesn't happen anymore. That the consumer is going to be the one who decides that, you know, that their that technological unemployment won't happen because people will just refuse to to do business with people who do that. And um, the problem is is that uh, 
the consumer has proven you know, this is where I you know we, we usually have issues with it is that uh, to the idea that the consumer who is also in the middle of essentially a greed based economy is going to just decide not to pay more for a given product you know that was made through quote unquote honest or moral means um, it, it doesn't seem to be at least not in our current paradigm anyway it doesn't seem to be realistic to me anyway that uh, oh. our slaves to uh, advertising are going to be a, the best arbiters for dealing with any kind of product. Right. Like well, that. that's where we are currently now. In in something much closer to the idealistic free market, there would not be such a thing as a consumer. That, right. is, that is a concept created uh, after layer of layer and century after century of contrived and controlled markets, which is exactly the opposite of free markets. So, um and largely, we've had this discussion, Neil, and we we did it at length, I think, for a couple hours on some of those YouTube videos. You yeah, played. I was just going to suggest that people check that conversation out. No, what did you call it? A, a talk with Ray Powell, I think. Yeah, yeah. But um, and you know, we get into this in in depth. But um, you know, largely what it comes down to is that um, these these points you're making are valid and are true. That we do have a consumer class. That we do have these these manipulations in the market. That we do have guys who sit around and plan obsolescence. That we do have guys have sit around uh, who take um, efficiencies created through technology and keep all the wealth for themselves. The you know take all the extra abundance for themselves only and leave people with nothing, including a job that they really don't want to any uh, to begin with. But they don't even have that. Um, so these things do exist in this modern point we have come to. So they're not irrelevant. But um, if we could go back and kind of restructure something uh, and start operating in a way that is closer to a free market, they could become irrelevant in that, in that theoretical situation. So the closer we can get to that, the less relevant they are. And currently where we are, they're very relevant, unfortunately. Well, I think um, you know that, and especially you know people like me and Gregory and Devin would probably be you know on board more with along the lines of like why have a market when we could just create a situation where we develop what people need. Um, but we can get into that argument in length at another time. Um, I do want to hear from Chris. Do you have anything to say on this topic? Uh, yeah, you know, a couple things. First, thanks for having me on. Great to uh, meet some new people and talk to Ray and you again. I haven't talked to you in a while. Uh, I was I was just thinking to myself, I really enjoy the process of uh, having the opportunity to talk about ideas like this. Because, you know, I'm sitting going around on YouTube, too, and between cat videos. Uh, occasionally, I like <laughs> to watch a good lecture or a debate. And uh, so, like, the only places I'm uh, that I find interesting content anymore, to, not to put too fine a point on it, is this really, like, esoteric and high-level stuff about neurology or uh, memetics and cosmology and things like that. Uh, and, uh, w w you know, this, the overall progress of the show has been a huge heap and slice of that, starting all the way way back at uh, the Romney-Obama debates or the false dichotomy thereof or the huge sandcastle of lies that goes around them to make it all economically viable and got into this level of uh, how uh, society values good services and information in such a way uh, that drives these economic trends and the people who have been successful at them for thousands upon thousands of years. And so, you know, nothing new under the sun, as it were. But having the debate 
at that level has got to be informative to someone because I enjoy the content. I like thinking about it at that level. So uh, it it reminds me uh, why I got involved into broadcasting in the first place, if you all remember that uh, going way back to to, to trying to sell anarchists to libertarians to me was so much fun. You know, uh, and here we are trying to sell information theory to people who really need it if they don't already have it, and they probably do. Is uh, uh, Zeitgeist and Venus Project and bigger and Occupy and out into the Ron Paul crowd too, and larger than that in Greece and Spain uh, to get these people to understand that when they take the the loaf of bread and put it to their mouth. There's a lot of other people and labor and ideas that went into that transfer. Uh, and if they fail, if they only can see as far as the crust, they'll never understand, uh, as, as Devin so, said so well earlier, uh, realize who's ramming them up the ass with a dildo. Right. That's, Ow. <laughs> it's a George Carlin thing. Um, so it's, it's wonderful to have this conversation and I'm, I was real happy to be here. I'm no, I appreciate that. Make sure if you're going to reference George Carlin that you reference it correctly. He said a red, white, and blue dildo. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Flag du jour. I am totally going to have to change the, uh, the profanity level on this broadcast. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Everybody's been messing it up. Um, no, no, but, uh, on the topic of, um, uh, ironically, of talking about how these things work out, somebody just linked this to me on Facebook, but uh, it's called Truth from Truth Beckons, uh, blamed for the bee collapse. For those of you who don't know what that's about, uh, people, the bees have been uh, dying in, in large quantities, and those who don't understand how important that is, uh, bees are critical to the pollination of you know, foliage, and if we don't have them, uh, we're not going to have any plants. Uh, so that being said... Uh, Monsanto, so basically, blamed for the bee, the bee collapse, Monsanto is the company that most people are kind of pointing the finger at uh, because of their Roundup and all their terrible other chemicals. These are the research firm, Natural Society, April 19, 2012. Uh, Monsanto, the massive biotechnology company being blamed for contributing to the dwindling bee population, has bought up one of the leading bee collapse research organizations. The company's genetically modified corn may be devastating uh, the dying bee population. It is evident that Monsanto is under serious fire for their role in the downfall of the vital insects. It is therefore quite apparent why Monsanto bought one of the largest bee research firms on the planet. It can be found in public company reports hosted on mainstream media that Monsanto scooped up the bee logics firm back in September 2011. During this time, the correlation between Monsanto's you know, genetically modified crops and the bee decline was not explored in the mainstream, and in fact, it was hardly touched upon until Polish officials addressed the serious concern amid the monumental ban. Owning a major organization that focuses heavily on the bee collapse and is recognized by the USDA for their mission statement of restoring bee health and protecting the future of insect pollination could be very advantageous for Monsanto. In fact, BeeLogic's company information states that the primary goal of the firm is to study the very collapse and disorder that is thought to be that is thought to be a result of, at least in part, of Monsanto's own creations. Uh, there's a link here to another link uh, as far as like the article, and I'll drop that in the chat room. Um, um, wow! Only on only on B Radio could we start with uh, the presidential debates and and end with bees. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's amazing. 
The funny thing about it that was made it relevant, though, is that it kind of plays back into that. You know, in a free market, there's nothing illegal about buying out a firm that's meant to, you know, that's meant to investigate you. Um, and even within the state, though, the solutions that are offered, like the Environmental Protection Agency, just gets, you know, infiltrated by corporate people. You know, um, most people don't know, for example, that Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, used to be the uh, CEO of Monsanto, and then he ends up in the president's, you know, uh, secretary of defense. Uh, these people all just kind of revolve around. So, you know, state watchdogs aren't necessarily the solution either. Um, so you have to look at, you know, different ways of select, you know, suggesting that. But I just wanted to bring that up mostly because I thought it was funny and kind of played into what we were discussing earlier, you know, the, the fox kind of being the one guarding the chicken coop. So, um, but to... To further comment, I just wanted to put that out there, but uh, to further comment on what you were saying, uh, Chris, is that um, actually a friend of mine named Aaron Hawkins, I think that you and uh, AG would like him a lot. I'll link you his YouTube channel sometime. Uh, he's known as Storm Clouds Gathering, is working on a, a network that he's putting together where he's trying to make an alternative news hub. And uh, the the website has a functionality that you can click on whatever perspective you prefer um, and contribute articles, uh, links to radio shows, YouTube videos, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he set up one, for example, for the Zeitgeist perspective. You can add, like, you know, Zeitgeist-related content to it um, to kind of be a hub for people of all sides. I mean, we, we experimented with this a little bit in revolution broadcasting, but the idea is, is that we need to offer an alternative intelligent debate. And I think that one of the reasons why, for example, people are going to ask me why I bring on people that don't always necessarily agree with the Venus project is that, um, I think the fairness doctrine, uh, as much as people like to be all about, you know, liberating these things, the biggest thing I learned about Fox News, and when I, you know, and that's what I started this episode with, was that the fairness doctrine was kind of critical. And even if it's not a law, it, it should be something that anybody interested in, you know, being part of the media or a reporter or bringing the news to the masses should consider an, a, just a fundamental ethic. You know, that, that at the end of the day, you know, if my ideas are good enough, I shouldn't have to squelch the, you know, the expression of other ideas, at least not in a media outlet. You know, and as long as everybody's um, respectful, then that works. It's constructive. We can have exchanges that I think will elevate the consciousness. I think that the problem we've had historically is that these conversations are rarely respectful. People take their politics as seriously as their religion and their personal identity. Um, and therefore, it really hinders the ability to, for us to have these kinds of exchanges. It's one of the reasons yeah. why I'm making the troll film was just to kind of put a spotlight on the terrible way that we treat each other on the Internet. Um, and By the way, Neil, I've got a, uh, a uh, confessed ex-troll that I was going to refer to you. Oh, please do. Um, you know, but it's just to talk about how we... Hey, that, that conversation was private. <laughs> the... <laughs> oh, yeah, there's Chris, too. How we're staggering the... Uh, <laughs> you're saying I'm not trolling you now? <laughs> oh, he's not even an ex. I got the face on. There's no trolling on B-Radio. There's no crying in base baseball. <laughs> but, you know, I see what you're saying very simply. Um, like, as a new slash to Venus Project people, you're not going to convince the world that your way is the best thing. Sorry. New slash to libertarians. You're not going to convince the world that your way is the best way. Sorry. 
uh, and I'll say that newsflash to everybody. Uh, you're just nobody's interested in global solutions at this point in history. Um, they're just not, and uh, nobody is trust trusting of anybody on a large scale in order to implement a global solution. So that's just where we're at. So um, largely, what you're saying is. Uh, so we can get together and talk about all these ideas. And they're neat and fun and everything. Uh, where the rubber meets the road, though, is uh, how do we get these this system to uh, – how do we help uh, it um, along on its way of uh, falling to pieces so that we can start, start implementing it? There's a very easy solution, very easy solution that everybody seems to to ignore, and that is stop participating in the damn system. Right, right. Stop playing the game. The only winning move is not to play. <laughs> I, like I guarantee you, I guarantee you, uh, a, a billion people stop going to work, something's going to change. A billion people stop consuming and only uh, 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 acquire what they absolutely necessarily need to survive, there's going to be some change. It, it's non-participation that's going to make the change. Not doing something, it's not doing something. I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's just what is what is it that makes that so difficult for people? Is you know, is just this this because ego attachment, ego attachment to their to everything they've you know, whether it's their degree or their job. It's, it, it's a really deep psychological thing you have to go through to let go of that stuff. They're conditioned to to think that that is a detrimental move. Uh, people are conditioned around self interest. And they've been brainwashed for centuries into believing that they must submit their labor for income to survive. And it's a paradigm that we're all stuck in. And so when you're stuck in a bubble and you, and you don't even know that you're in the bubble, how the hell are you supposed to get out of it? You can't. It's impossible. Well, and that's actually, uh, as I pointed out in my uh, information breakdown presentation at Z-Day 2011, um, you guys can check that out. Um, it got added to the TZM, the Zeitgeist Movement YouTube, and you can also watch it on my YouTube channel. Although Peter's version of it is better, he makes it prettier. Um, was that you know, and this kind of plays into what Ray was talking about earlier about the job thing. Um, we are conditioned to believe that people who do not have a job are bad. Uh, we are conditioned to believe that people who do not have a job, like there's something wrong with them. Even people who are self-employed seem to have some kind of weird stigma, like, you know, uh, having a J-O-B is required to be, you know, be valued as a human being. You know, there are frequently times, you know, that I deal with trolls all the time, that that's what they were focusing on was, oh, he doesn't have a job, you know. Um, and it's not to say that there is not a class of people out there who are unproductive, who just kind of sit around lazily, you know, because there is. But it, but I've also met a lot of people who do have jobs who I don't think contribute anything to society at all, not just through their jobs, but just through the kind of people they are and the way they act, you know. Um, and I think that you know, I'll take, uh, you know, 10 unemployed guys who actually know what's going on in the world uh, over one guy who's got a six-figure salary and is, you know, just destroying the world. Um, and that's, I think, it's kind of about, you know, the value of a human being and their contribution as far as to, like, what they should be uh, praised for or what, uh, you know, what they should be, you know, thought highly of for should be about their contribution to making the world around them better. And in some cases, that's going to be for people who have a lot of money. And in some cases, it's going to be for people who don't have any. 
or at least not making it worse. Yes, for sure. Um, Chris, do you have anything to add? Oh, well, first I wanted to say uh, if there's anyone you want me talking to, uh, be feel free to give them my email. I'm sure you have it or my Skype. Uh, I mean filter everywhere. Look it up. Uh, yeah, you, you get into the question of uh, how you actually address the solutions. Uh, if it's a question of goods, then local VOR is an easy solution on it. Uh, you know, the better way to describe it is to look at race point. There's... Uh, is is there a way to implement a global solution on it? No, and I don't think so. I think you have to be piecemeal because of the nature of volition. Each individual chooses their own uh, selection of values, as it were. So what you get is is individuals and then groups of people uh, whose meme plexes, as they're called, uh, converge towards a common center. Uh, and if you research team building and organization theory, this becomes very important in how you centralize people around ideas, uh, Zeitgeist Movement being a great example of it, Occupy being another. Uh, Occupy being a, a, a wonderfully magical example because it appears to have no central theme. Uh, but, you know, then, then you start getting into the how is progress made question, and frankly, it starts with the people who have the know-how to accomplish strategic aims uh, organizing groups to do so, and while we sit here and enjoy uh, such autonomy as we have to talk about what it would be like to form groups that can implement change, it's wise to remember there's groups already out there who exist, are in place, and are doing it. So uh, I wouldn't say know your enemy because they're not my enemies, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Ray also said uh, that... Uh, there's never been. Oh, he implied that there's never been a free uh, market in history, uh, and that's I, I disagree on principle. In fact, it's always been an absolutely free market, which is not the same thing as saying it's been fair. It hasn't ever been fair, but it's always been free, and you've been always free to break out of it and to see past it and to operate as an individual or group actor within it and succeed to your heart's content, as long as you understand what you're so-called up against. Well, I agree with I agree with what you're saying there. It's a definitional distinction. I, right. I'm referring to the free market referred to by Stefan Molyneux when he says that uh, planned obsolescence doesn't exist. That free market. You I know. think if Stefan had a little more hair on his head, he'd feel the tingle. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's I actually my exchange with him about planned obsolescence was pretty funny. Um, I gave him a link to the film. Uh, the light bulb conspiracy, uh, which was actually made in Europe. It's a really good film. You can find a link to it on my website. Um, but it's all about plant obsolescence. And, you know, so I said, so what do you think of that? Do you still believe that plant obsolescence is a fallacy? And he takes a while to answer me. And when he finally does, he's like, well, sure. I mean, who makes a light bulb to last a hundred years anyway? And I'm just like, that's really your answer. <laughs> I was like, and I just I didn't want to push it because I have a good professional relationship with him, but he wasn't willing to go along with the idea because he had just put out a video uh, to debunk Peter Joseph's responses, you know, by trying to claim that plant obsolescence just doesn't happen, you know. Um, and that's actually what you know sparked the conversation between you and I, Ray, when we were talking on your couch that people can see when they go to YouTube. Um, I mean, yeah, what kind of ridiculous thing is that to say? Right. That it doesn't happen. I mean, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Stefan. And his work, it's awesome, amazing work that's eye-opening and is changing the, the world in nice, subtle, important ways. But how can he make such a statement? I don't even fathom. 
Right, and I I think that he cognitive thinks... dissonance. Two words: cognitive dissonance at the highest level. A perfect <laughs> right. example, actually. Right. 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 I guess intentional, you know. intentional apathy. Right. Well, that's. I got into an argument with a guy uh, who calls himself Lady Addis. Uh, frequently, somebody who uh, would argue with um, Brandy, actually, and this guy, um, he comes off. I guess he he claims to be really well. Uh, we only had 90 seconds to put this out. He claims to be really well educated, but I think that one of the points that he brings up, like he brought up that, uh, you know, that supposedly sweatshop labor, you know, and the idea of outsourcing, you know, is a fallacy too, because you know, if production goes up, then wages will rise, as if it was a law of physics or something. You know, he just kept repeating that, and because he read it in all these books written by all these authors who supposedly know about economics, and I'm like, well, you know, the sweatshop laborers in China are not experiencing higher wages. They're experiencing lower wages. So, so anyway, right, anyway we're down, we're to, down a to a minute. Uh, uh, real quick, real quick Thunder, give the link to your uh, website or your show. Um, you just go to Stickcam and search for ZBN. That's where you'll find us. All right. All right. We've got a uh, show uh, coming up uh, with Ben McLeish and his trilog with uh, Troy Wiley and Manny Otto coming up tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and obviously you can check out my website, v-radio.org. Um, I'd like to talk to you gentlemen a little bit off camera, uh, camera, <laughs> um, after the show is over here. I'm going to go with them, them with uh, some parting, parting words from Roxanne Meadows and Jacques Fresco. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V-Radio.